0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Baked and Awake show. I'm your host, Steve Kaminsky, and I try to sit down here about once a week, spend some time with you talking about my favorite semi-illicit houseplant, cannabis, and what it means to myself and so many others. While we're getting stoned to the bone together... I enjoy nothing more in this world than exploring the darkest corners of the World Wide Web, movies, and news media of all forms for the juiciest and weirdest stories, mysteries, and conspiracies, and then sharing them with you. As I said, we'll be smoking on the show and talking about it. So I guess either talk to your young people, if listening in the car around them, Or maybe wait till you have some grown-up time. Either way, we won't be butt-chugging cannabis-infused Mountain Dew knockoffs on mic or on camera, so you needn't fear your tweens and teens hearing about it from us. Since we hung out last, I've been busy down at the garden at work, hanging a bunch of lights up in our mother room, shuffling plants all over on the first floor, and progressing our first runs of Tangerine Dream, Cherry Pie, Nine Pound Hammer, Cinex, Lemon OG, Kemi Jones, and Berry White from Veg to Flower. It's incredibly fun for me to really be in a large grow like this for the first time and to be intimately involved with the plants and bringing them to fruition. I can't wait till November when we finally start sampling the fruits of our labors, and I'll be able to start doing my sales thing with the Washington Legal Weed Retail Shops. I did take one day out of last week, however, to attend an industry marketplace event. It was organized by the very professional folks down at Kush Tourism. Uh, The event went down on Tuesday, September 12th, in historic Pioneer Square in Seattle. Well attended with what I estimate to be at least 50 tables, representatives from all three layers of the I 502 legal weed industry that is, producers, processors, and retailers, as well as a bunch of the more relevant ancillary businesses like packaging, rolling papers and accessories, glass, testing labs, extraction equipment, payment processing. Uh, you name it. Uh, really, overall, pretty serious people and businesses offering relevant products and services to each other. Uh, product, uh, producers and processors were allowed to bring live samples to the event, so um, you know, browsing retail buyers, for example, had a chance to you know fondle product, smell product, get close to it. Um, this is crucial. It's really important, as you might imagine, in. Your you know qualifying process as a buyer test results notwithstanding uh you couldn't purchase anything there though you couldn't exchange or consume on premises during the day down, down there in pioneer square so excuse me um you know alas pretty hard to overcome with the current laws in public and semi-public locations at this time where you're just not smoking at these get-togethers in, in the uh, in the daytime so um You know, no smoking notwithstanding, the crowd walking the floor had to number at least a couple of hundred during the couple hours I was there. Uh, I even met one of our own uh, tier three grower neighbors from Tacoma, um, from down by our facility where we're actually situated. Um, uh, Lifted Cannabis, so shout out to the Lifted Cannabis crew. Uh, I think some of you might recall, I want to say it was episode three. I um, tried their 501st OG strain uh, during my OG strain uh episode um when that was strain of the week and uh really liked their 501st OG uh great strain I'll be keeping my eyes out for it from other folks as well and will certainly not hesitate to uh pick up that flower from lifted again so uh that was cool uh to meet those guys in person and to realize we're down in the same down on the same block down there so uh maybe we can visit them sometime later uh, but yeah, so I figured, you know, if I saw a couple hundred people while I was there, uh, they were open from 10 to four. I was only there for a couple of hours out of the whole day. They had to have over a thousand people come through over the course of the day. And if everybody, you know, came through with similar kind of mindsets and agendas to, you know, I'm sure what I myself had and, uh, most of the folks who I bumped into down there while I was there, uh, I bet it was a darn productive day for absolutely everybody involved. Um, so you know, a great opportunity to get a lot of contacts, however fleeting, you know, with a bunch of ideal targets, um, you know, whatever vector you're at there. So well done, Kush Tourism, for putting that together. It was no cost to industry people uh, to visit the event. Um, you know, maybe it cost the, um, the folks who were, you know, displaying, who had their tables and, and booths there uh, a bit, but uh, hopefully it was worth it for them as well. I bet it was. So... Um, on my way out of that event, the daytime, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I was handed a small slip of paper with an address. Uh, it was to an after party at a separate location. Uh, you know, all neatly printed out and, you know, come see us tonight at 630 for an event after party. Um, we were, uh, you know, we were noted on that paper that we could uh, partake of the, uh, the old jazz cabbage there in the evening, uh, location. I don't think they used that word, uh, But uh, I like to throw in one antiquated saying per episode if I possibly can. If you go back, all the way back to episode one, I bet you find one funny in every single show. Uh, uh, Anyway, 6.30 that night, uh, Tuesday night, I dutifully returned to downtown Seattle. The location for the after party was at the Seattle Glass Blowing Studios, a little further up, uh, up on 5th, under the Seattle Monorail, uh, close to Seattle Center. So, um, cool spot to go to anyway, regardless. Um, how was it? You ask. It was damn fun. I mean, you know, I had to go stag like the lonely stoner that I am. Um, but, uh, I got out there, you know, and was happy to see numerous people from the daytime that I had said hello to. Um, it was by no means everybody who had uh, attended during the day, uh, you know, made it out to this after party in the evening. I don't think I saw more than, you know, 50 or 60 people, um, you know, hanging out at the after party. But, um, you know, pretty quickly, a couple minutes after walking in the door, I'm handed a joint uh, by a fellow. Uh, I cannot remember his first name, but it was uh, he was from the A-list group, um, aka Tahoma Flavors. And uh, he handed me a fatty one gram uh, grape kush pre-roll, uh, clocking in at like 26%. So no slouch, uh, they definitely brought a nice nice sample pre-roll there for everybody, and he was handing them out to a few folks, gave me one right off the bat. Uh, needless to say, this boded well for the evening for me, got me off to a wonderful Indica-powered start to the um, evening. Um, probably wasn't done with that thing five minutes when at the edge of the room I spotted a processor that I had seen and talked to earlier in the day. And was really really excited to see at this after party, um, the American hash makers brought the old school fire to the party. They proceeded to put on a hash hashish clinic, uh, replete with dabable crumble, like a crumble consistency type hash. They had uh, rosin, um, they had you know finger hash in small wafers and, and bricks. Um, and they even had a terpy, like, moist sugar-type hash product. So um, they demonstrated amply right there that they can bend hash different directions and process it different ways, very much like your better extract um, labs and, and uh, teams can with BHO or whatever solvent is their choice. Um uh, but certainly showed me more variety than I expected to see, you know, I think a hash and I think of the hash brick, the little hash wafers, um, you know, that you maybe crush uh, a chunk off of, you know, chunk, uh, you know, break a little chunk off the side of and then crush it up and sprinkle it over your bowl. You know, that's what we used to do with it back in the day. Um, so, uh, you know interesting different stuff that they were showing during the day and here they are at the after party so i'm like yes yes please get ready to do some dabs and indeed they did so uh they set up a whole table they had an email they had a hash pipe they were doing their whole thing um and it was really fun without exception the ones that i tried were absolutely wonderful uh they were you know it was both familiar to me and at the same time kind of a whole new level um You know, I tasted a bit of a musty, dusty note, uh, in particular on the finger hash type product, the most traditional hash type product and in a hash pipe and, you know, long wooden hash pipe. Um, So, of course, it's going to taste a little bit, you know, down that line um, that way. But it reminded me of the first hash I had ever smoked as a younger man, Um, you know, in a way that those of you who smoked it back in the day may remember, you know, uh, old school, let's admit it you know, at times harsh, uh, finger hash type product from, you know, questionable, possibly questionable anyway, but probably questionable source material, you know, handled by complete unknowns, you know, um, would sometimes be a little rough, you know, but it was certainly potent if nothing else. But, uh, you know, this was cleaner than that, than that back in the day hash, uh, it was less harsh. It had more of the, the flavors of earth and wood and the plant, you know, even though hash is trichomes separated from the plant and rolled into the hashish, you know, in the, in the original finger hash form. But all hash should share that characteristic, just being the trichomes. No, no real plant matter, no leaf matter, no chlorophyll, thank you, material in the hash, uh, other than super trace. So, um, you know, it was definitely cleaner than the old school stuff. Um, the dabable hash reminded me very much of BHO. It had a noticeable aroma to the vapor. Uh, it had an aftertaste I would characterize as layered and complex, uh, you know, peppery, spicy. Um, uh, it's got a muskiness to it that only seems to be associated with hashish. Um, the dab expands in your lungs like the best concentrates do. Uh, potency seemed to be right in line with the middling to strong concentrates I've had, you know, and I've dabbed plenty. Uh, the gentleman running the table from American Hashmakers, I want to say his name was Andrew. Forgive me if I got it wrong, but I think it was. Um, he supported this impression. He told me that dabable hash runs into the 70s, you know, um, for THC content routinely. I'm peeking quickly at my business cards. Do I have, I do have one and it is Andrew. There we go. Andrew Cole, founder american hash makers so he probably knows what he's talking about 70 70s or higher for thc content so there we go um needless to say i'm duly impressed with hash in all its forms i'm charged up about it i am looking forward to bringing it back into my personal repertoire we'll certainly visit it here on the show smoke some hash and talk about it and understand it even more um Things I loved in particular, uh, probably the complex flavors and the smell. My nose is terrible, so I love it when I can smell something. Um, you know, noticeably the absence of any need for solvents, uh, also in the pursuit of attraction. That's a big thing that, you know, it seems to go hand in hand with the hash folks as opposed to, you know, certain other kinds of concentrates. So uh, many of you may find you'll also enjoy it. Give hashish a try. Uh, That was my big takeaway from that party, I think, that night. Um, On top of that, you know, flavorful and educational trip down Hashish Lane. I did do some other stuff at the party. I kicked it with uh, Justin, uh, a.k.a. Georgetown Jay from Georgetown Cannabis Company, um, right near my neighborhood up here in Skyway, not far, just down the hill from me here. I smoked a bit on a bowl of one of his own strains, and I am sorry to say I didn't take note of the name of that strain, Jay. Uh, Forgive me, buddy. Let's try it again. Um, I did enjoy a dab of some of their concentrates. Those were processed by the folks over at Dabstract Labs in central Washington. They always do a good product. Um, Jay, thanks for hanging out. I hope you hear this later in the week. Uh, Look forward to coming by maybe your facility sometime down in Georgetown for a tour. Um, Anyway, yeah, that's most of the party. Um, You know, the party was... Uh, A lot of fun. It was seriously medicated, uh, you know, no getting around it. But they did give us plenty of ballast there. The old um, Kush tourism folks, they uh, brought literally a pile, a stack, a mountain, a small mountain of Costco pizzas, uh, loads of bottled water. Uh, Nobody seemed to mind at all uh, that, you know, we were drinking bottled waters and not alcoholic beverages. It just was not even on folks' radar that night um it was really nice to actually see you know that's all you really need is a little pizza and bottled water to keep a smile on everybody's faces at that point and really can you blame them you know uh yeah so we are getting ready to drop back in to Mel's Hole this episode and uh we are moving fast we you know that was just a little bit of a recap of my week including a cool industry event I attended um no new strain of the week this week. I'm, I'm puffing on the last of uh, the flower I had last week right now. And I uh, got a little concentrate set up over here for uh, one dab later in the program. I am going to grab a beverage for myself. I'm going to pause recording. I'm going to review the sound up to this point And we're going to come right back. I'm going to jump back in Mel's Hole Part 2. The Hole Gets Deeper. The Hole Gets Weirder, Mel Gets Stranger, and then we're going to get through to the other side, I promise you. It's all going to be over today. All right, get yourself stocked up, get yourself settled in, make sure you got everything you need, because when we come back in just a moment, it's Mel's Hole. Welcome back, back down the hole we go, a note or an alert if you will, Uh, if this is your first episode of the show that you're listening to, you may wish to go back, Uh, go back, back into time and listen to last week's episode number five, where we began the story of Mel and his mysterious hole. For those of you thinking something like, yeah, right, pal, you're lucky I even clicked on this, I say to you, fair play, and glad to have you. In summary, a man calling himself Mel Waters called in to a famous nationally syndicated radio show, Coast to Coast AM, back in 1993, with an outrageous story of a seemingly bottomless pit on his eastern Washington property. It's not a mineshaft, says Mel. It's not a well either, nor a cave in the normal sense. This hole abounds with mystery, dampening sound inside of itself, defying anyone to discern its true bottom. It even had tales of a mysterious black light that emanated from it at times. For the rest of the backstory... You'll either need to go digging for the original tapes, recommended, or as I said, go back and listen to episode 05. It's okay. We'll wait. Alright then, for the rest of the class, I believe we left off last episode with Mel, flush with cash from his nearly two-year-long quarter of a million dollar a month in 1993 dollars, mind you, subletting of his mystery hole to the, quote, U.S. government. All seems like it was going pretty good for old Mel, if not perfectly. Remember, he still doesn't know what's at the bottom of his hole. Well, let me just tell you that Mel doesn't get to retire to Dilan Daunanda, and save the wombats while milking eucalyptus leaves for their exotic oils or whatever it was he was doing down there. Nope. He couldn't leave well enough alone and stay away. Old Mel said he had to come back to the U.S. after just a couple of years. To visit family, some BS like that. I certainly wouldn't have. Anyway. He's back in Washington State again on this visit of his, and everything in Mel's precarious world begins to come right off the rails. The way this goes down is Mel, back in Washington State and without a car, is riding a city bus around. So he's on the bus one evening and manages to get into an altercation of some kind with uh, Rando. The Rando's uninvolved in any further problems, but, you know, they, the bus driver called the cops, the bus gets stopped on the side of the road, the police come, they interview everybody, including Mel, and then they insist that Mel accompanies them to the police station to straighten things out. Mel is, according to himself, at this point, incapacitated and kidnapped. So, Mel, as the story continues, goes missing for 12 days with no memory of his abduction. He's dropped off. In San Francisco, California. He's been robbed. He's missing teeth. He's disheveled and confused. He's been roughed up. Total basket case. Side note, upon hearing his whole tale of woe, uh, uh, Art Bell later got the show to pay for Mel's Restorative dentistry. So, uh, (laughs) all right, you know, as the story goes, anyway, they believed it enough to uh, help him out with, uh, taking care of what apparently was several teeth removed from his head. Um, so this rendition, if you will, this abduction and, uh, subsequent interrogation, um, and, you know, drugging, etc., seems to be the prelude to the coup de grace, Uh, That being when Mel finally gets back to Washington State from California, where he was dumped, uh, having been wired bus money by his own nephew, uh, who, by the way, he later moves in with, as he is now somehow completely penniless, despite being a self-described overnight multimillionaire from the government payout deal. Uh, Mel is confronted once again by shadowy types and told... He is no longer the owner of the property. He is in violation of the terms of his lease because he didn't own the property outright, never claimed to. Uh, We in the bank is how he characterized it originally to Bell. It was really his wife's. He He was leasing it. Uh, from his now ex-wife, who he has in the interim from the first call to now uh, become separated from, and the time he spent in Australia was on his own apparently without her. Uh, but he had, you know, retained somehow a deal for rights to her, and was paying her, you know, ten or twenty thousand dollars a month uh, in in rent for this uh, place. So, uh, you know, one can surmise that perhaps in his absence, uh, you know, she finally came to the conclusion that if she was getting 20 grand a month from Melly, there, that, uh, he must be getting a whole lot more than that. Um, so maybe he just simply got outmaneuvered, uh, you know, as the perhaps more presumptive true landowner, uh, his ex-wife, uh, who also, by the way, so we'll get to this, uh, in a bit, but, um, n- neither Mel nor his wife, uh, who we're talking about in this entire story can really be verified to be real people they can't seem to find mel so and i think his ex-wife's name was bonnie but to get back to it here um he's in violation of his lease according to these folks who are now taking control of the property and have worked out a separate deal um The basis for the uh, claim of legal action against him and finagling themselves out of their overpriced uh, lease to him uh, was that, uh, you know, the stipulation of him owning the property or having control of the property was that he didn't pave it. He didn't plum it. He didn't put power on it. All things Mel claims the government boys did, you know, after they subleased it from him you'll recall that earth-moving equipment and whatnot from earlier. So, (coughs) Excuse me. Back to his abduction and recovery for a moment here. Uh, In addition to taking his money and taking his molars, they took Mel's belt buckle. Uh, Along with being a retired semi-pro shark fisherman, and rural indigenous mystery plant researcher. Mel is apparently an itinerant jeweler and artisan and has crafted, among other things, uh, a run of 10 belt buckles incorporating some unusual coins Mel is said to have found on the property. These coins were a number of U.S. dimes The 1943 was the year uh, featuring President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the coins. Now, I haven't looked back yet to see if FDR was ever the president on the dime, and I really apologize for that. But I feel like Eisenhower is on the dime. Maybe, maybe we didn't put Eisenhower. On the dime. Who do I got here? I guess it is. Maybe it is FDR, huh? It seems like a much more likely candidate to be on a dime than Dwight D. Eisenhower. Maybe it is FDR supposed to be on the old dime. This dime I'm holding right now is a 94 with the mint symbol of D on it. And yeah, I'm going to say that's FDR. So yeah, so FDRs are president on the dime, and I'm just showing my historical ignorance of, uh, you know, who's on the U.S. currency right there that's been in my pocket my entire life, but hey, what do you want? Anyway, Mel made this belt buckle. He made a run of ten of them. He found some dimes on the property. These dimes ended up being part of this guy's folk art jewelry, right? you know, it's like his, some kind of... Uh, yeah, like Southwestern style or, you know, semi-native folksy metal bending. I want to say there was a silver fork involved in this that was bent in a certain way. And then, um, some commemorative coins or some real currency coins, uh, in the case of the dime, uh, you know, brazed to this belt buckle. And, um, the other two, uh, yeah, so the, the other two coins on there were one of Churchill and one of Stalin. It was like a commemorative belt buckle, you know, commemorating like the world, the heroes of World War uh, one, World War II. Uh, so, you know, here's this dime. It's a 1943 dime. Uh, he found a bunch of them on his property. He used them on this belt buckle. FDR was still alive in 43, and last I checked, we don't put like living presidents on currency. I definitely don't think that was the case. I think they put him on, uh, you know, shortly after his actual death, which I want to say was late in 45 or early 46. Um, so, uh, you know, is this an example of Mandela effect? Is this a man in the high castle kind of, um, you know, alternate universe kind of thing? We don't know. Uh, I found it really uh, cool, though, uh, and funny, uh, but definitely on the weirder side of uh, one of the things. Uh, so, you know, uh, Mel made sure to tell this part of the story. It was important to him. The belt buckle was deprived of and The belt buckle had a unique coin on it. Um, later on, and he continues to tell uh, Art Bell, uh, you know, he went on to see this uh, one of the other nine extant belt buckles on somebody, I think maybe, a, a months later. Um, and, uh, the gentleman who was wearing it, he was approachable. Mel was able to approach him and, and speak to him. Um, and, uh, he had the belt buckle and was able to inspect it again. And, uh, You know, it was very remarkable to him that he should, you know, find somebody wearing it uh, uh, loose uh, out and about uh, after the fact, after having uh, been deprived of it in his uh, in his abduction. So uh, at any rate, jumping off of that for a moment and moving on to a couple other weird aspects of the original of the whole and the story about it, you know, um, and I have here none shall pass or view it online. Uh, note: When asked about finding the spot for other investigators, Mel explains that location was blocked from a uh, early Google uh, pre Google Maps type um, software um, repository, like database called Terra Server. Um, and uh, this is again ninety two, ninety three Google search Google Google search period launched in ninety eight. So I don't know when we got Google Maps, but it was a couple few years after that. Um, so uh, TerraServer had, you know, whatever satellite imagery was available at the time, uh, somehow indexed and available to search it back then, um, to some extent. And anyway, they claim that it was blacked out on TerraServer, um, or or blocked out, excuse me, uh, in the form of white rectangles over the spot on the ridge where Mel claims the site was. Um, on the ground, he claims it's blocked off by, you know, roadblocks and and barriers and cement blocks and things. Uh, on the Forest Service roads that Mel used to use to access the property uh, by these shadow government people. Um, so, you know, looky-loos and randos, let alone him, uh, can't get to it uh, readily or easily, and certainly not without it app- being apparent to anybody who does encounter them that they would have had to go over a barrier to get there and are therefore trespassing. So probably subject to, you know, any of the usual threatened reprisals against trespassers. So... Um, yeah, you know, and they're still likely being, uh, you know, observed as of, you know, any time that they were talking about the story, um, here on the show, on the radio show. So, um, at any rate, you know, after being, you know, paid off and, you know, voluntarily banished to Australia, staying there for seemingly a couple of years, Saving the wombats, you know, subsequently coming home, being completely dispossessed of everything. Down to his belt buckle and teeth. Mel decides, okay, enough is enough. Gonna get the F out of Dodge. He moves to, like, rural Nevada. Which the whole damn state is rural, if you know that. Uh, So he goes to Nevada and lays low. Nevertheless, his reputation precedes him, even to this sparsely populated part of the country. A group of local Native American people approach Mel down there about another hole. Yeah, they got a hole, got a hole. They don't per se own it. In fact, it may be on government land already or private property. I think it's on private property. It's another not super particularly well nailed down location. Um, you know, um, by Mel, he doesn't he never does too good of a job with that and in this case it's on purpose he says because he wants to protect this hole um, from being interfered with right like his other one that got taken away from him so this second incredible hole um, Mel is provided access to because of his notoriety about his own hole obviously Uh, so the land and the hole uh, per Mel is in control of a group of Basque people, of all things. Uh, If anybody who's familiar with, uh, you know, modern references to the Basques, especially in the context of sort of the um, strange stories and conspiracy theories side of things, um, there are some stories about RH negative bloodlines and, you know, ancient bloodlines, royal bloodlines... Uh, being, you know, traced back to the Basques, and um, so interesting stuff about them, and of course, one would also ask, uh, you know, where does a, you know, ancient, supposedly, if not extinct, assimilated, um, you know, Eastern European uh, tribe and culture, uh, you know, How do they come to be mentioned as residing in and presiding over uh, stewardship of another mystical bottomless pit in the American Southwest? Uh, So, you know, I mean, Mel's story has been weird for a while now. So why not? Basques in the desert, hanging out near a bottomless pit that they're protecting that they let the natives hang out by as well um so anyway these people wanted to know all about Mel's hole they wanted to show him their hole they wanted to exchange hole data all the way around and give him access to their hole so that he could learn about it as well uh so this by by now this is a few years have passed I mean this is like like literally coming up on 99 or 2000 when this is uh, going on. Uh, So, you know, it's been going on for years at this point. Um, Anyway, the Nevada hole, uh, it looked like it was some kind of, it it was different than Mel's hole. Mel's hole was pretty natural looking-ish until they built a small wall up around it and put a gate over the top of it so that it was, you know, uh, a metal hatch over it so that you wouldn't fall in. Uh, this whole, you know, picture something closer to like what we saw on Lost, the TV show. If you ever remember uh, having watched that show, um, sort of a bunker uh, type construction. Uh, it was as, it was described as uh, being metallic. Um, it was straight, uh, straight and perfectly up and down. It was lined with a metallic sheathing of some kind as far down as could be observed. Um, this hole also, despite uh, being metallic, didn't allow any noise uh, around or you know over the hole opening. Um, the metal was reported by Mel and others to be warm to the touch, warm enough so that uh, people who were camping and spending time out by the hole, uh, their sleeping bags were said to be kept warm you know, on the ground and directly next to the outside of the hole. Radiation, anybody? I don't know. Seems a little bit, yeah. I'm not sleeping there, but, um, who's camping out there anyway? I don't know. Uh, so, you know, they claim it's been there looking just like it was going all the way back to the 1800s, um, One thing about the above, so the above ground portion of the edge of the hole, uh, is like a flange. It almost looks like they described it as being like a airlock portal or, you know, some sort of lockable, you know, interface type collar, um, type thing. So really interesting thing, but, you know, supposedly a couple hundred years old. So I don't know, um, Shades of hollow earth, shades of ancient aliens, you know, shades of interesting uh, different, you know, angles here. That's what that's what I love about Mel's hole. There's so many angles. There's just it's nuts. Uh, So Mel gets to experiment on the Nevada hole eventually. Um, You know, they have to go back and forth and obtain some permission from these Basques. The natives approach Mel, then they go approach the Basques themselves and everybody works it out that he, you know, he's the man to go check it out. So they want to find out the temperature in the hole, and they get some ice, regular old. Uh, this is one of the experiments he does, and it ends up turning out to be a big, big deal in terms of their exploration of the hole. They want to know how hot it gets in the hole. You, you imagine when you go deep into the earth, you get down to a certain depth. Uh, it should get probably warmer, I think is what's understood. And people who, you know, go caving and spelunking, it gets warm down in a lot of these spots. Uh, down under the earth Um, so you know that's their this is the test they want to test they want to test some ice they get a bucket of ice that's the control ice they leave it up at the surface they put it in a you know on a tray and observe it they put some ice in a basket and lower it down they watch the ice at the surface uh, for a good half hour hour whatever when it's about halfway melted uh, they begin pulling back up the ice down below because the idea would be you would want to get it back up to the top before the rest of the ice from the ground surface melted, you know, to sort of ascertain the difference. Um, uh, So they bring this ice back up. The ice in in the basket that went down the hole is unmelted and, according to them, warm to the touch. So, you know, why you don't just cut the cord on that and drop it right back down to the center of the earth at that exact moment, I don't know. Um, Because it seems pretty flippin' unnatural to me. But they keep it. Not only do they keep it, they fuck around with it. They decide. And why not? I mean, why not? Assuming I don't drop it back into the hole, into the earth immediately, I probably would try this too. They put fire to it. This ice is like it—it's turned into sterno or something down there. I don't super sterno, thermo sterno, thermonuclear sterno. Uh, the ice lights up. It doesn't go into an uncontrollable explosion or anything. It's like some kind of crazy low heat. Um, like I said, I characterized it as sterno. That's what it sounded like they were describing to me uh, more than anything else, but they stayed free of describing it that way um, using that name brand word. But I'm I'm describing like a gel fuel type flame, not texture or consistency. They did say that when it was touched, when not a flame, uh, that it felt granular and you know, uh, like, uh, glassy or something, um, at any rate, um, they even went so far as to take a sample from that larger sample that they pulled up, one of the Basques took it and, uh, took it home to his cabin in the woods slash, you know, hideout lab of his own in another state, uh, over in like rural Wyoming and, uh, was supposedly trying to use it to heat his cabin in the woods, like put it in his wood-burning stove. Um, so, you know, here I ask myself what's, you know, what's this magic ice? Is this a free energy type substance? Are we talking about, you know, uh, ice nine, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's, uh, Ice Nine from, uh, one of his novels that escapes me at the moment, um, interesting stuff, though, uh, you know, hard to understand, um, they repeat this experiment several more times, they only sometimes get more magic ice back, um, you know, so, don't know, they don't know under what circumstances it, you know, is made or not made, but, uh, we're not even at the weirdest story yet. So the last story that Mel tells Art Bell is probably the biggest... You know, requires the biggest suspension of disbelief of it all, of them all. And this is, again, the Nevada hole. Hole number two. Uh, Mel says that he's ashamed to say that, you know, amongst all the other things they put down the hole, and they put loads of different stuff down this hole, evidently. Um... They stopped short of sending people down this hole because they didn't know what would happen to them. I mean, you go down and you come back up with flaming ice, you know, uh, uh, anything could happen to a person. We're, we're 98% water, not, not 98%, 80% water, something like that. I might be 98% water sometimes. Let's have a sip of LaCroix. They stopped short of sending people down there, but, um, some genius in their crew decided that it would be a great idea to send a live sheep down. Because sheep are so capable of relating their experiences back to us. So, uh, they lower the sheep down alive and they he tells a gruesome story about the sheep being scared and them having to clunk it on the head, try to daze it and get it to calm back down. Yeah, calm back down, knock it the fuck out. So that they can lower it into the hole. The thing still wakes up as they put it over the hole. And they watch it screaming and writhing silently over the sound dampening hole of doom as they lower it in. Uh, So they lower it down to about 1500 feet. They leave it there for 30 minutes. And they pull it back up. Uh, The sheep's dead. After 30 minutes. It's warm. appears to be cooked from the inside. Great work, guys. Uh, So, (laughs) Uh, they decide to cut it open and perform an autopsy, which I think is only the least you can do, having wasted that animal's life um, in such a weird way. Uh, Unscientifically at that, I would have to imagine but uh anyway they perform a grisly autopsy out in the field somewhere and um, inside this sheep they find a creepy gigantic tumor thing they decide to excise that and then cut it open in order to see what's inside it inside the tumor that they cut out of the sheep that they lowered into the bottom of the hole or the very top of the hole at 1500 feet because I imagine again they talked about this hole being totally bottomless uh, this what appear to be a living baby fetal seal creature of some kind With human eyes. Quote-unquote human eyes. (laughs) The most compassionate eyes, he was said, to describe it. Yeah. So this thing... Proceeds to silently sit there, regarding them. Eyeball-fucking them for two hours... Uh, then nods and climbs back into the hole. Before leaving, however, the seal speaks to them telepathically. Uh, He accomplishes this through uh, the tuning of a conveniently located boombox that the natives evidently had around and had brought with them on the expedition to hang out and listen to music in their downtime on or some shit. (laughs) The seal talks to him telepathically over the boombox, over the radio, like in between the stations, you know, when you tune in between the stations to use your old um, iTrip iPod transceiver. I imagine that's what the seal was doing here. Uh, He warns them that the magic ice is dangerous. Uh, That they need to get a hold of it and keep control of it or return it to the hole. You know, that it could or and would destroy the entire Earth in a very short period of time if used greedily and inappropriately. Which, apparently, it always is. (laughs) Which... You know, that's why we can't have nice things, people. Uh, One last note about the seal. Uh, Mel participated in the autopsy, and he uh, also uh, adds as a side note at the end of the story that he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer uh, that he hadn't mentioned before this point in time, but that that's okay because the mystical seal, which left its ozone-smelling ooze all over Mel's hands uh, during the autopsy and its birth that it cured his cancer yeah so fuck yeah pretty awesome uh, so yeah uh, postscript to the Nevada hole story includes a uh, piece of the magic ice you know that we were talking about that had been taken to heat uh, the cabin uh, over in I don't know if it was Wyoming I don't know if it was somewhere further in Nevada I'm not sure uh, but the magic ice was uh, supposed to have uh, really dried out the cabinet, dried out the researcher's body. He, he got out of there after a few days, um, left it in place and working maybe to observe how it continued to work and how long it continued to burn, I think was the idea, you know, because this has been going for months, um, supposedly. Um, but this ice kept on sucking the moisture out of the cabin and began to eventually make the cabin like collapse in upon itself and on into the ground that it sat upon Um, the stove sank into the ground in the floor the cabin began to collapse into itself the you know the the researcher the basque had you know abandoned it uh, at this point in time Um, and uh, so what uh, was reported to have happened by Mel was that uh, again Uh, mysterious shadow types uh, appeared uh, seemingly from nowhere and uh, converged on that location uh, and through determined effort and uh, with major heavy equipment managed to finally uh, actually remove the ice and the stove from where it was sinking into the ground in that location and uh, spirited off to parts unknown <clears throat> uh not to be seen again um i don't know how they were observed doing that without the people themselves getting in trouble so uh or observed in turn anyway uh so you know uh a couple of points in summation you know yes mel does sound a lot like uh especially as things go on like he's kind of full of shit um He's clearly hiding things on a lot of the calls or holding things back. Uh, At times, he'll even admit that some of this may be due to his agreement with the, you know, the shadowy government people who took his land and basically threatened him. So, uh, you know, perhaps we can't totally blame him there. Um, The story does manage to touch upon so many different classic conspiracy theories that I can't help but think it's disinfo of some kind. Um bell himself he sounds like he's also incredibly well prepped on these calls which he always always is and always does uh he guides the discussions expertly too expertly i i don't know uh, i am definitely not here to cast dispersions at guys like art bell he's a legend he's a titan and i'm just some guy talking to like four people on a podcast so but you know Bell has been accused of being a disinfo shill somewhere before, as has virtually everybody who's sat down at a table, gotten behind a microphone, and ever said anything that's different than the mainstream narrative. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, whenever Mel is asked, do you have this piece of evidence, a photograph, that piece of evidence, the dime, You know, uh, the recordings of the telepathic tumor seal... You know, Mel doesn't have shit. He has stuff, but not handy, or not right here, right now, or I'll try to get it to the show, or, you know, what have you. Um, As I mentioned earlier, no verifiable person named Mel Waters can be found or traced to this part of the country, this story, or anything about it. His so-called ex-wife is also missing and nowhere to be found. Um, You know, talk to his neighbors, who knows? At this point, you know... However many years later, uh, twenty-five years later, something like that, uh, everybody in Ellensburg will tell you they knew Mel or his nephew or his ex-wife Bonnie or something. I mean, it's an urban urban legend. So uh, it just gets harder as the years go by, right? Um, you know, uh, I was I definitely found it interesting. Both holes were said to admit, emit black energy, uh, black light from the hole. Uh, you know, is that? Is that a a black ooze story? Is that some hollow earth stuff? Um, You know, Mel and his weird Indian medical uh, Native American plant lab. Was it DMT? Was it weed? What was it? You know, weed wasn't legalized until 98 in Washington. This was, you know, 93 to 97 to 2000. So you know, crossed into that threshold later on in the story of the legal years, but I don't know, I'm not sure he wasn't growing wheat. Um, there's more weird, you know, little footnotes to footnotes about this story, but, you know, and I'll leave some of them in the notes. I'm just scrolling, looking at it. We've beaten this horse. We've beaten this hole. Um, we threw the hot dog down the hallway. I feel like it's—I feel like it's—you know—safe to say at this point I've made myself amply clear about the fact I think Mel's absolutely full of baloney, uh, and that this entire story from just about start to finish is complete hogwash. Or is it? Bear with me here for a moment. I'm just going to lay out for you one or two points worth considering before forever banishing Mel and his whole to the round file, never to be spoken of again. Consider, for a moment, the notion that on the face of it, Mel's initial call was mostly straightforward. He had some property. On it was this weird asshole. He couldn't get to the bottom of it himself, and nobody in town had any idea either how deep it went. On top of it, it was weird. He needed help. Let's just say for a moment that this little kernel of Mel's story was true. There was a hole. He was bottomless. It was bottomless, (laughs) and he was curious what others thought about it. Now let's further conjecture, based on what we've been told, that some completely on-the-up-and-up U.S. Army types happened to hear about the hole through some intelligence briefing or other. Maybe some spook on an early version of an NSA panopticon heard the show. I don't know. Mel's property was pretty dang close to the Yakima Training Center, though, and a lot was going on out there during that particular era training-wise, etc., It wasn't a sleepy little base, and they probably had all sorts of reasons to want to understand what strange, mysterious, natural features may be close to or bordering on their property. Maybe some intrepid explorer might go down the hole sometime, discover it takes a turn to the left part way down and becomes a tunnel. Either way, it's not inconceivable that Mel would be approached and temporarily inconvenienced by them as they satisfy themselves of its potential threat to the base and might even decide that they have domain over whether Mel, at all, get to continue to use their hole for, apparently, decades of illicit dumping of trash of all varieties. Yes, today you can go right on Google Maps and find a spot called Mel's Water Hole and see the spot that's claimed to be the hole. I guess, I mean, why would it not be, I suppose? they could seriously do anything and we'd never know it, especially out in a rural area like that. It's very common in the realm of armchair conspiracy analysts like myself to hear stories of would-be whistleblowers, often right after somebody finally starts listening to what they have to say, for them to suddenly and seemingly bafflingly change their stories. When this is observed to have happened, we tend to suspect that the person has been gotten to, They got to him or her, we say, confidently. For surely they were telling the truth at first and have been threatened with harm or death if they persist. In fact, it's not enough for them to go quietly. They must do that, of course. But first, they must discredit themselves. If they don't do it voluntarily, well, they, of course, can do it for you. I don't know. I can't shake the feeling that Mel started out with something real, and it maybe, understandably, got away from him. He certainly doesn't seem to have gained financially from his misadventures. And from what we can tell, last anybody heard of him, he was still communing with natives in a mysterious tribe of expat Basques out in the Nevada desert. Alright, with the clock winding down, that about does it for the story of Mel and his Technicolor Dreamhole, and I sure hope you liked it. I know I certainly did when I first discovered it, and despite the strange turns the story takes, and the high likelihood of it being a designed and deployed piece of disinformation, as we say in the game, it's nevertheless a lot of fun, and gives the listener more than a few jumping-off points for their own continued explorations, should they choose to follow the clues where they lead. I've enjoyed myself once again this week sharing this story with you all and deeply appreciate the help and support of my wife Nicole as well as other behind-the-scenes friends who are listening, texting, and messaging me on Facebook to let me know they're now off listening to the Coast to Coast archives. Thanks to me. Success. Tune in again next week for more smoking and another great story. Until then, you know I like to tell you to smoke indica and do shit anyway.